Hello, my name is Tapu Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 63. First, some headlines. The UK has shed over 700,000 jobs over the lockdown, according to the Office for National Statistics. In another blow to the high street, Debenhams is to cut 2,500 more jobs on top of the 4,000 announced in May, amounting to a third of its workforce now out of work over this period. According to data from Refinitiv, M&A activity appears to be rebounding, with June and July M&A activity amounting to $300 billion each, compared to the $100 billion in April. In a bit of a serendipitous follow-up from last week's hypothetical mention of EasyJet, EasyJet have raised an additional £600 million by selling and leasing back part of its fleet, as constantly changing travel restrictions continue to hemorrhage the airline industry, with S&P Global forecasting a 70% drop in air travel this year. In the wake of the national disappointment in how A-level results were determined, and a trend of more socially inclusive recruitment, DWF has scrapped its AAB A-level requirement for its training contract applications, now requiring the more abstract, good results, allowing context to be considered. In law firm responses to the pandemic, White & Case is offering, quote, remote international seats, end quote, to keep up its guarantee for trainees to get six months of international experience, and Adelshaw Goddard has brought back a third of his previously furloughed staff and has reinstated partner profit distributions. And finally, because recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of economic decline, the UK has officially gone into its first recession since 2009. On the somewhat bright side, this is a global recession. The UK obviously isn't alone. On the not-so-bright side, the UK's recession is the deepest of all major economies. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's format is three longer reads. For the first read, in a follow-up from episodes 12 and 60, Apple's App Store antitrust issues have escalated, resulting in the removal of Fortnite from the App Store and a retaliatory lawsuit from Fortnite's developer. So, before we detail the escalation, let's talk about how we got here. In episode 12, we covered Spotify filing a complaint to the European Commission, the EU's antitrust body, for allegedly unfair and anti-competitive practices by Apple. Spotify also launched a website called Time to Play Fair, where they presented their allegations for all to see. The one allegation relevant for today's story was a specific issue with the App Store's 30% app tax. Part of the App Store's terms of service is that every seller's sale whether for the apps themselves or in-app purchases, is subject to a 30% tax as part of selling on the App Store. However, obviously, any app that Apple sells on the App Store is not subject to such a tax. This has been the sticking point for many sellers on the App Store, and how antitrust bodies respond to it has been of interest for a number of years now. And so, in episode 60, the European Commission, in response to Spotify's complaint, finally opened an investigation into the App Store and whether Apple was abusing their position as both marketplace and seller on that marketplace to be anti-competitive to other sellers, and whether that app tax specifically was unfair. As there is no deadline for the filing of charges from the European Commission, it could be a while until we hear the outcome of this investigation. It seems that Epic Games, the game's development company responsible for Fortnite, weren't interested in being patient. In case you don't know what Fortnite is, it is a free-to-play video game available on computers, gaming consoles, and pretty much till two or three days ago, most smartphones. Though it's free-to-play, Fortnite brought in revenues of $1.8 billion last year, 
The reason for this is because its entire profit model relies on what are called microtransactions. Microtransactions are pretty much what it says in the name. They are little purchases one can make in the game to buy virtual goods to use in the game. This usually involves someone using real money to buy the game's virtual currency to use in the game's marketplace to buy those virtual goods. If this is flying over your head about why someone would do this, once again, $1.8 billion in revenue last year. Fortnite's virtual currency is called V-Bucks, and the purchase of those V-Bucks for a Fortnite player on iPhones were of course subject to the same 30% app tax. And so, Epic Games, Fortnite's developer, decided to get a bit cheeky. On the iPhone app, they were selling 1,000 V-Bucks for $10, but were also offering the same number of V-Bucks at what they called a 20% discount for $8, but the 20% discount purchase would only be available if the user made the payment directly to Epic Games. If the user selected the 20% discount, they'd be redirected from the game to the Epic Games website to make the purchase there instead of the App Store. Of course, Epic Games did the math. The 20% discount would give them the full $8, but the full-priced item as an in-app purchase would only give them $7 because of the 30% tax. And, as you can imagine, such a move was against the App Store's terms of service, resulting in Apple almost immediately removing Fortnite from the App Store for violating those terms of service. Apple's statement upon removing Fortnite was, quote, Today, Epic Games took the unfortunate step of violating the App Store guidelines that are applied equally to every developer and designed to keep the store safe for our users. As a result, their Fortnite app has been removed from the store, end quote. And, as if this was exactly the reaction Epic Games wanted, they immediately went on the offensive, taking a page from Spotify's Time to Play Fair website by starting the hashtag FreeFortnite and launching a short animated film titled 1980Fortnite, as a parody of an old Apple advertisement that Apple made to paint themselves as revolutionaries challenging IBM's information technology monopoly when the first Mac was released in 1984, of course, as a nod to George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. Epic Games' animated short accuses Apple of becoming what they once challenged, as they allegedly used their position to stifle competition. Epic Games also filed a lawsuit in California asking the court to order Apple to effectively end the 30% tax. To take an excerpt from the filing, Epic Games have said to the court, quote, Apple's conduct has caused and continues to cause epic financial harm, but as noted above, Epic is not bringing this case to recover these damages. Epic is not seeking any monetary damages. Instead, Epic seeks to end Apple's dominance over key technology markets, open up the space for progress and ingenuity, and ensure that Apple mobile devices are open to the same competition as Apple's personal computers. As such, Epic respectfully requests this court to enjoin Apple from continuing to impose its anti-competitive restrictions on the iOS ecosystem and ensure 2020 is not like 1984, end quote. It's also worth noting, per the complaint, Mac computer users don't have the same issue. Users can buy apps from the Mac App Store or directly from a developer's website, and so if that is pointed out, the inconsistency does at least ask a few questions. It's also worth noting that, since then, Google's Play Store has also removed Fortnite from the platform for the same 20% discount move, but most Android users can still download the app directly from the developer, unlike iPhone users. Epic Games filed a lawsuit against Google in response to this removal as well. And with that said, let's talk about it. 
First of all, I love it when lawyers get a little dramatic. This filing starts with an analogy to George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. If there's something British lawsuits should take from the U.S., it should be a little bit of flair. But on to the serious stuff, this has been a very quick and monumental escalation. Google following suit shows a certain solidarity amongst the app marketplaces, and Spotify crawling so Fortnite could run shows solidarity amongst the developers drawing a corporate line in the sand. Of course, Epic Games also has a marketplace on computers some haven't been the happiest with, but that's beside the point right now. This seller versus marketplace battle will be quite significant for the future of tech regulation. The reality is that regulation often has to play catch-up with how fast tech is changing traditional models of commerce. As a result, Epic Games deciding to take this into their own hands may define future regulation in the US and the UK, and it could indirectly influence the European Commission's investigation into the App Store. It's also worth noting the effect of public opinion in business. Most companies and law firms have made statements in support of racial equality for this reason, and the podcast in episode 26 even covered Chick-fil-A announcing the closure of their first UK branch after only eight days of operation because of the restaurant's anti-LGBTQ history. For this reason, obviously on a smaller scale compared to social justice and equality, the free Fortnite hashtag is also a little clever on Epic Games' side. This hashtag and the movement behind it is an attempt to drum up support, with the hope of Apple folding without the need to continue the lawsuit. This will probably require Apple's lawyers to assess the risks in fighting the lawsuit and external pressure, probably weighing the potential of a boycott from customers and sellers on one side, and the retention of profits and public support on the other. Regardless, this is still an antitrust issue in its purest form, and extends the conversation we had recently in episode 60, as we consider what should and shouldn't be allowed from tech companies who play as both marketplace and seller. And, without even being hyperbolic, this is probably one of the biggest antitrust concerns of our generation. So with that said, I have a few questions for you. They can either be rhetorical or you can feel free to discuss them on the podcast Instagram page. First, the basic question, what do you think? Do you stand in favor of the seller or the marketplace? Does the inconsistency Apple has between the computer's app store and the phone's app store sway you in any direction? Or did Epic Games simply violate the App Store's terms of service they agreed to, and for that reason, deserve to pay the price? And should a marketplace be able to make some sort of money for hosting a market, and how should it be monetized without being anti-competitive? It seems Epic Games understand the need for some sort of tax but find 30% too much. Is this too opaque an argument? And finally, since Epic Games went to a court, compared to Spotify complaining to an antitrust body, should a court be able to forbid a tech company from taxing sellers on its marketplace, or should that be left to antitrust bodies? Credit for this story goes to Dieter Bonn, Epic Games, Natalie Jarvie, and Nick Stat. For the second longer read, which we don't have to spend too much time on, let's talk about Advent's purchase of a 75% stake in Hermes's UK business. With Kirkland and Ellis as legal advisors, Advent International, an American private equity firm, has agreed to purchase a 75% stake in the UK operations and 25% of the German operations of parcel delivery company Hermes for 1 billion euros from Auto Group, a German e-commerce company advised by Millbank for this transaction. With 31% of the UK's online retailers using Hermes for delivery, Hermes's view of the investment is an intention to increase that market share and capitalize on this year's very large win for e-commerce. 
However, Martin DeLange, Hermes's chief exec, in acknowledging that online shopping is, quote, booming as a result of the coronavirus, end quote, has also admitted that, quote, there will definitely be a slowdown which will impact the company's business, end quote, if the global economic downturn results in even less consumer spending, whether physical or online. He also acknowledged delivery companies' codependency on retail groups in general, stating, quote, What's important is that the retail industry doesn't have too many casualties, end quote. So, why does this matter? Well, it illustrates just where some of the recent financial activity is stemming from, as this transaction involves a delivery company looking to expand its business and a private equity firm looking to profit from a growing industry. It also helps us build the case we've been building over a number of episodes, which has been the rise in online retail and e-commerce and the financial opportunities it presents, including, of course, where firms can be involved, as Kirkland and Millbank were involved in this instance. However, we mustn't let confirmation bias lead us to ignoring any quotes that don't fit this narrative. Martin DeLang's caveat adds a little more nuance to this rise of e-commerce narrative and is that e-commerce still relies on retail in general to survive. I know what you might be thinking, duh, companies can't deliver parcels if nobody is selling items to deliver, but this admission once again reminds us of the relationship between delivery companies, retailers, and of course, the consumers. It's nice that Hermes have 31% of the UK's market share when it comes to online retailers, but if entire retail groups become insolvent, that market share is obviously at risk of shrinking. And if the UK's deepest recession in history results in consumers becoming more frugal, this too will play an important role in the profitability of retail and, in turn, parcel delivery. I mean, when we mention these job cuts in the headlines of every episode, one can imagine that every single person newly out of work may be a little less inclined to spend freely. And of course, as many of these job cuts are as a result of the downturn in physical retail, if we're willing to conflate these two issues a little bit, it can look like a bit of a negative feedback loop that's worth paying attention to. And it once again brings back questions like what the future of employment will be for many of these people. For that question, Hermes announced in late July that they will create 10,500 jobs to meet parcel delivery demands, and this may indicate the potential for those in physical retail to still find work elsewhere in the retail chain, but this will obviously not cater for all. But I digress. Though the future of employment in the wake of the job losses is, in my opinion, a conversation that needs to be had in tandem with the future of retail, we are drifting a little bit from the main story. But just be aware of how all of this is related. As for law firms' involvement in opportunities, like in this story, they could be involved in similar transactions where parcel delivery companies seek to expand their business and innovate. Equally, they could have roles elsewhere in the retail chain, like we saw in episode 59 with All Saints' CVA, or episode 58 in Intu's administration, and of course, like the lawyers involved with the automobile makers PSA and FCA's merger, as their merger hits a snag because of antitrust concerns over the control of commercial vans as a result of commercial vans' importance in the e-commerce and aforementioned future of retail. There is a lot of potential work for law firms as per, but I also think that there are a few more conceptual questions that need answering, and Martin DeLange and his caveat seemingly brings that into the forefront of those participating in the market. Credit for this story goes to Kirkland and Ellis, Milbank, and Kay Wiggins. For the third and final read, let's talk about Diageo and the much broader conversation it allows us to have. 
So Diageo happens to be an alcohol maker headquartered in London and is the largest spirits maker in the world, known for producing Johnny Walker, Smirnoff Vodka, and non-spirit Guinness. As a result of lockdowns across the world and the closure of venues which would regularly serve and sell alcohol, the company has had to write down 1.3 billion pounds of its assets as a result of impairment charges to some of its global businesses. New term alert, what's an impairment charge? In simple English and in this context, the company would have valued their businesses and assets at a certain amount before the pandemic. As a result of the pandemic and the disruption it caused, their businesses can no longer be valued that highly, and for that reason, they must note the drop in value on their balance sheet. Noting this drop is known as a write-down, and the nature of the write-down is the aforementioned impairment charge. It's really in the name. The value of the assets has been impaired by, in this instance, the pandemic. And on its own, that's a bit of a story. It illustrates the challenges of another sector, as Diageo are not the only alcohol manufacturer to write down their assets, with Heineken and Anheuser-Busch InBev facing 550 million euro and 2.5 billion dollar write-downs respectively. But let's take it a bit further. Diageo, like a lot of companies, has had their business interrupted by two things, the pandemic and the government-mandated lockdown as a result of the pandemic. And so, you'd think that companies with business interruption insurance would be expecting a payout to assist them during this interruption of business. If only it were that easy. In fact, Chancellor Rishi Sunak said at the time of the government-mandated lockdown, quote, Let me confirm that, for those businesses which do have a policy that covers pandemics, the government's action in the lockdown is sufficient and will allow businesses to make an insurance claim against their policy, end quote. The issue is... And to Rishi Sunak's credit, he made this observation too, a number of companies do not actually have a clear policy that covers pandemics. In fact, the Financial Conduct Authority on the 15th of April even admitted in a letter to all CEOs of small and medium enterprises that, quote, Our estimate is that most policies have basic cover, which do not cover pandemics and therefore would have no obligation to pay out in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. While this may be disappointing for the policyholder, we see no reasonable grounds to intervene in such circumstances, end quote. This sparked a bit of an uproar, with 400 companies complaining to the FCA about their insurer's failure to pay out on their policy. This resulted in the FCA taking a little more zealous approach, conducting a test case, in which they have, in collaboration with eight major insurance providers, challenged some of their basic policy terms and left it to the high court to determine whether those insurance policies require a payment out to the companies affected by the pandemic. The high court's ruling will be binding on those eight insurance providers and will determine whether they will be legally obligated to pay out to the companies they cover. According to the BBC, this ruling could affect up to 370,000 companies in the UK. As part of the test case, the FCA has submitted some sample policy wordings from the eight insurers for the High Court judge to determine the correct interpretation. A link for the sample policy wordings is in the description. But broadly, the policy wordings require the insurer to indemnify the business against physical damage to the premises of the business, denial of access to the premises, and, at times, a notifiable infectious disease. Interpretation will be key here as it can be argued that no physical damage has been done to the premises as a result of the pandemic, and though there was a lockdown, it can be argued that the lockdown was a denial of carrying out its normal business, but not actual access to the premises. 
Further, the indemnity against notifiable infectious disease seems like it would be the winner here, but some policies involved exhaustive lists of diseases, drafted before COVID-19 existed, so COVID-19 wasn't on the list for obvious reasons. And so, what the High Court decides will have very large ramifications in insurance law, contract interpretation, and of course, the financial health of over 370,000 SMEs across the UK. The trial took place in late July, and there is hope that the judgment will be passed in mid-September, which could be subject to an appeal. You can sign up on the FCA's website for email updates on the case, and the link will be in the description. With that said, let's talk about it. So, why does it matter? I mean, that question seems rhetorical for this one. The scale of the test case and what it could do for the future of insurance policy drafting, payouts, and even the finances of some of the largest insurance companies in the UK cannot be understated. One has to think that after this, many companies will not be willing to accept an exhaustive list of diseases their insurance policy covers, as they tend to miss diseases that haven't been discovered yet, again, for obvious reasons. And whichever way the courts decide, lawyers will be at the forefront of future insurance policy drafting and negotiating. But on that note, one of the defenses the insurance companies argued was the freedom of contract the companies had when choosing an insurance company and policy. But if the high court finds all the policy wordings in question to have the same effect, resulting in none of the 370,000 companies being protected, just how much freedom is there? And how much room, if any, did these SMEs have in negotiating these probably boilerplate insurance policies? It's also worth noting that the test case will impact 370,000 SMEs and eight major insurers. But there are almost 6 million SMEs in the UK and over 100 business insurers with varied insurance policies. Someone else can do those permutations, but that spells that beyond the test case, there may be a number of businesses suing their insurers for a failure to pay out, with courts having to read incrementally varied policies with unique facts to each case. Which, again, could mean quite a bit of business for firms if we do see a proliferation in insurance litigation. So, just like that, we started with alcohol and turned it into a groundbreaking insurance law case relevant to our times. A lawyer's miracle. Credit for this story goes to the BBC, the Financial Conduct Authority, Judith Evans, Jumana Rahman, Thomas Shortland, Charlotte Ritchie, and the UK government website. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description, and the podcast Instagram page is at commawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.